meeting here again this year. I'm saying this now because in the will of the Lord, we will be packed up in the morning and uh, the board members and Joe have been kind enough to allow me to speak first in the morning, or maybe that's just the way it's fallen out. So um, that's good because we are going to leave tomorrow. We'll be packed up, and we've got about an 11-hour-plus drive to the town of Ogden, Utah, which is a little north of Salt Lake City. And Lord willing, on Sunday morning, we're going to meet with a small group of believers there, just a few families, and then continue our journeys on, working our way back to another conference in Pennsylvania and then eventually back to Florida. So because of that, I certainly don't want to appear rude. If you want to say your howdy-do's and goodbyes and things like that, today would be the time to do that. Today would be the day to do that because tomorrow, Lord willing, we're out of here. And so uh, today, if you uh, would like to say, I, I never really like to say goodbye. I, I like more biblically to say Maranatha. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, we have the hope, the absolute assurance that one day we will meet again. It may not be here in this valley. It may not be on this planet. It may be in the air. It will be with the Lord Jesus. And one day we'll never have to say goodbye. Won't that be a wonderful thing? And so uh, we, we thank you for the years that we've been able to be here thus far at this conference. It's been a real treat for us and a real blessing. Uh, there are places where you go and minister and it serves a sort of a dual purpose. Not only do you get to preach the Word of God, but it is a refreshing in your own soul and an encouragement uh, as well. And I can certainly say that this conference at Yosemite has been that for us. So we're very thankful, very thankful. Let's look again briefly in the book of Proverbs chapter 3. I left off last night in chapter 3 <clears throat> as we were looking at this chapter Focusing in a bit more on verses 5 through 6. I mentioned that there were two ways in a practical sense that we fulfill what's found in verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. One of the ways was honoring the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. And the second is, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, a son, in whom he delighteth. Whom the Lord loves, He corrects. With that in mind, let's turn to that passage which you were just in, in Hebrews chapter 12. But in the part of that passage that Joe uh, hasn't dealt with this week, nor was it his intention to, but it follows the verses, verses 1 through 3, where there is a direct quotation from this passage in Proverbs, Hebrews in chapter 12. 
We read in verse 4, You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, even if you hadn't been reading your Bible very long, or didn't know a whole lot about it, maybe didn't even know the book of Hebrews that well, it wouldn't take you long to figure out that in Hebrews chapter 12, at least verses 5 through 11, that the subject is chastening. Because it is repeated, at least the word is repeated, over and over again. I find that the subject of chastening is a crucial one. It was, was in the Old Testament, as we see in the book of Proverbs. It is in the New Testament, as we see here in the book of Hebrews. Perhaps it is one of those subjects that is not clearly stated often, and maybe sometimes even a bit misunderstood. So with the Lord's help today and from His Word, we want to look at the subject of chastening and see what God's Word has to say about it. Now, one of the things that you have seen in the book of Proverbs is that things build upon one another. So what you get in chapter 1 in the early parts in a couple of verses is expanded throughout the chapter, which then is built upon in chapter 2, which is expanded in chapter 3, and so on. And so I know that as you have followed along, that as you, you, you find what uh, a chapter is saying or a theme in the Word of God is saying, you find the same thing here in much of the way that the New Testament is put together. What I'm trying to say with that is that you will know by now what comes before chapter 12. And what comes before chapter 12 is chapter 11. Very good. And what comes before chapter 11 is chapter 10. I want to suggest to you that what you get in chapter 12, which comes after chapter 11, flows right out of chapter 10, particularly the latter half of chapter 10 and a few verses. And let me read those verses in chapter 10, beginning in chapter 10 and verse 36. And perhaps I back up to verse 35. 
Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience. Let us run the race with patience. Now, you know that that word is endurance or perseverance. Let us run the race with perseverance. After the, for that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But mark what he says in verse 39. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And if you're of those that, unlike Judas, who was the son of perdition, if you're of those who are of what is called in verse 38, the just who live by faith, you will not draw back. You will continue on. You will believe to the saving of the soul. And you will run with endurance the race that is set before you. And afterward you will receive the promise. He goes right into chapter 11 to give us an example of those who, in that sense, did continue on in spite of increasingly difficult odds with some of them and horrendous situations with others as he ends that chapter 11. Chapter 11 will show us not only those who triumphed by faith, but those who suffered because of their faith. You know, we sometimes have a misconception about who is a, a great example of faith. And you read it in chapter 11, don't you, as you get towards the end of that chapter. We think of those as he says, what more uh, shall I say? Chapter, 30, uh, t uh, chapter 11, verse 32. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. They through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And we think, you know, that that's what faith is. And if I'm not living in that way victorious, maybe I don't have it. Maybe I'm not a person of faith. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Others, he said, were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds, imprisonments. They were stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And then listen and mark what he says. These all having obtained a good report through faith. Now, why does he tell them this? Well, if we back up to chapter 10 for just a moment, as we have been reminded, and Joe has done such a good job of reminding us, you see, those that were living this, those to whom this was initially written to, they had paid a price. It was costing them something to come to Christ. Their salvation was free, and, and, and the Lord Jesus offered it. But few of us will understand what it was to be a Jew in that first century as the temple was still standing and a priesthood was still functioning. 
Few of us will understand because it wasn't just that you were leaving religion. This was your life. This was your family. This was your culture. This was everything. Moses and the law and the temple and all of that. Listen, this was not just something you did on Sabbath. It was woven into the very fabric of your being as a person from the time of birth and as a male child, your circumcision and all the rest of it. it was, you were enmeshed in it. It was part of you. It had cost these people something to come to Christ. Some of you have paid a price to come to Christ. It's cost you something. And that salvation which to us is free because of the death of God's Son, sometimes in this world in which we live, even in North America and in other parts of the world and around this world, it costs people to come to Christ. He says it in chapter 10 and verse 32, "...but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly because while you became companions of them that were so used, you had compassion of me and my bonds. You took joyfully the spoiling of our goods." of your goods. They took everything you had from you in this world and you took it joyfully. Can you imagine? You come home and everything in your house is gone. All your worldly possessions have been taken from you. You've been ostracized as an outcast. You have nothing. They took it joyfully. Why? Because of why they had done it. But it began to raise questions in their minds, didn't it? began to raise questions, and some of them were considering drawing back. Some of them were considering going back. Could this be the real thing, you see? Well, if all he had done in chapter 11 was to list the example of those who by faith conquered, they might have had reason to ask themselves, well, that's not what we're seeing it must not be real. Maybe our faith isn't real. Maybe the one we're trusting in can't get us through. And so he lists not only those who conquered by faith for God, but those who by faith suffered for God and received a good report. And chapter 11, of course, flows right into chapter 12 and the subject of chastening. Now, you'll notice in your Bible, at least in the translation from which I'm reading, that chapter 12 begins with that word, wherefore, or as our brother, I think, quoted for us this morning, therefore. You notice there's another one in the chapter. It's found in verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and so on. The subject of chastening. I asked myself a question some time ago, and some of you know, maybe you don't, that uh, a few years ago, kind of ties in with some of the things I said the other night, I was diagnosed with a potentially life-threatening disease. It was a product of my old life. After having been saved for over 30 years, you kind of think your old life is done, at least most of it. 
except for those memories and bad things that haunt you sometimes. And all of a sudden, through a whole series of circumstances that I won't take the time to go into now, it was discovered that because of things I had done 35 years ago, I now had a disease that could potentially kill me. By God's mercy, He spared me. I went through a year plus of very difficult treatments that sapped my strength, my energy, and caused me to experience depression and a whole host of other things. I believe it was during that time I came across a book. I'm kind of a funny book reader in some ways, or funny about how I read books. Sometimes I read whole books. Sometimes I read a line, and that's enough. <laughs> Just one line. Just one blurb off the cover. And it's so suggestive to me that it just sends me tracing down the different paths uh, that it suggests. And so I read this line on a book that I got hold of. It said this, What if life isn't meant to be perfect, but we are meant to trust the one who is? What if life isn't meant to be perfect, but we are meant to trust the one who is. And then it coupled that with this. What if the things that shape our character and lives are things over which we have no control? There's a lot of things in life that affect us that we make decisions about. Who we marry, where we go to school, what job we take, and you know, those type things. But what if the things that really shape and mold our character are those things over which we pretty much don't have control? You think about your own life and some of the things that you may have experienced or people that you know who are believers and things they've suffered. They never sat around one day and said, Lord, I think I want to get cancer. Or, Lord, I want to have a tumor. Or, Lord, I want to lose a child. Those were things over which they had no control. And yet the formative, shaping, molding effect of those things in their lives, were they chance, fate, bad luck? Or is it possible that there's someone there who lovingly, in wisdom, and skillfully is so affecting and shaping the life to produce the desired result, a greater power, a God who actually loves us and it's part of His plan. You know, in order to be one who... And Dave, you know, woodwork. I mean, fabulous stuff. I like working with wood. I got a few problems with it. One of my main problems is I hate sanding. <laughs> I know I could never be a great finish, you know, woodworking type of person. I hate sanding. I love to cut the stuff. I love to put it together. I love to, you know, do all that. But man, find me somebody who can sand this for me. Sanding is a very interesting process, isn't it? 
You know, if somebody didn't know what you were doing, they would look at you at first because if you don't know about sanding, you start with a very, well, with a coarse grade of sandpaper. And literally, as you're putting it to the wood, you're, you're destroying the wood in a sense to a point. I mean, you're kind of rubbing the surface off of it. And then you reduce the grit to a finer and a finer and a finer until all of a sudden it begins to bring out the luster and the beauty of that wood. Use the wrong grade sandpaper and you can absolutely destroy a beautiful piece of wood. Chastening in one sense might be described as God's sandpaper for the soul. He knows just how much pressure to put on. He knows just what grit of paper to use, if you will, in life to shape us and mold us into what He wants us to be. My other problem with woodworking and making things like that is, in a sense, I'm not a very creative person. Now, if I see something and can take a picture of it and measure it, you know, if you've already made it, I can probably make one. But I wouldn't just sit around and look, you know, there's a piece of granite. You know, in the will of the Lord in a few days, Lord willing, we're going to go another place we've never been, and that's Mount Rushmore. Now, that thing fascinates me. How do you look at that rock and think, I'm on a, I'm on a jackhammer Teddy Roosevelt's eyeglasses out of that piece of rock, and it's going to fit the rest of his face? It's amazing, isn't it? Somebody said being a sculptor is not that hard. Um, if you wanted to sculpt a lion out of a piece of marble, that's, that's pretty easy. All you got to do is get rid of everything that doesn't look like a lion. You got to be able to see the end result of what you're going for as you start. I know someone who can do that. I know someone who knows the end result of what it is he's trying to perfect and accomplish in our lives. And part of that involves this concept of chastening. Now, as I said, it's perhaps a misunderstood concept, at least for me it was for years. Coming from the South, as Joe does, we had a term, you may have used it in other parts of the world as well. Some of the younger set may not be as familiar with it, but there was this thing called the woodshed. It wasn't just a place where wood was stored. And so it became a term. If you were taken to the woodshed, there was a reason you were taken to the woodshed. And it was to be chastised, to be whooped, to be disciplined in that sense. For many years, I've heard the subject of chastening called God's woodshed. There may be an aspect of that. You know, we've been in the book of Proverbs, and I tell you, there's a whole lot in there about chastening, isn't there? And about chastening children and disciplining children. Now, my dad was not a saved man, but he believed in applying the Board of Education to the seat of understanding, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And uh, <laughs> I still say every boy deserves a good pat on the back as long as it's low enough, hard enough, and often enough. There's a place for that. But you know, if all you ever do is whip your kids... That's not chastening. If all you ever do, and I hesitate to use this phrase, I mean it in a, in a uh, 
poetical sort of a way, is whip the daylights out of your kids. That's not chastening. It's a much broader concept than that. You see, the word that's used here for chastening in the Greek is a word that means, and some of your translations may even have it, discipline. Child instruction. It's a much broader concept. It speaks about not only the classroom of life, uh, the school of God, God's educational process. Now, I never went very far in school, junior high, and a few little things after that, but not much. But I remember there was a term that used to be used. I don't even know if it's used anymore in fields of higher education. But people used to ask, what is your discipline? And that meant whether you were going into teaching or medicine or science or engineering. What is your discipline? You know, discipline in in that educational context or that way of thinking is an interesting thing. When you're little, when you go to kindergarten and first grade and second grade and third grade and so on, grammar school or whatever we call it nowadays, you don't get to choose the courses. You just go and show up in a room and a teacher says, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. and whatever. Now you get to junior high school. Well, at least as I went to school, that's the way it went. And you got to maybe make a few elective choices. But they were still within a prescribed uh, a group of things, weren't they? Oh, and then one day maybe you, uh, you, you graduate high school, you go to college, and the choice is all yours. Not. You still going to have to choose from certain things, aren't you? Now you do postgraduate work, and you're all on your own. You choose whatever you want. But wait a minute. Not exactly. Somebody's going to be monitoring that. So it isn't all, even in that level of education about what you choose, someone else has some input into that, don't they? You know, education can be a very costly thing, they tell me. And those of you who are perhaps involved in home education, homeschooling, by the way, funniest homeschooling t-shirt I ever saw, young lady down at camp in Florida had it. It had one of those yellow signs like you see on the highways, information signs. said, Caution, unsocialized homeschooler. <laughs> you homeschoolers can appreciate that. How will your children ever be socialized? <laughs> well, they go to Awana, they go to youth group, they go to Sunday school, they, you know, co-ops now, whatever. So, But anyway, even in homeschooling, you know, it's... It's, it's time-intensive. Education is time-intensive, costly. Can you imagine that God Himself has undertaken our educational process? To involve Himself at that level in our lives? To train us, shape us, mold us, discipline us, correct us when necessary, to bring us to the place that He wants us to be? It's a marvelous thing when we begin to think about it. The training, the education that is involved, chastening, upbringing, the father's training of a child. 
spiritually speaking, the process of spiritual growth, correcting mistakes, changing behavior. Chastening, as we find here in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, is corrective in nature. Verse 5, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Verse 6, whom the Lord loveth, he scourgeth. Verse 11, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. But chastening is an evidence of his love. Verse 6 tells us, Whom the Lord loveth, He chastens. The book of Proverbs will tell you, Chasten your child. If you don't chasten them, you don't love them. Love them enough to correct them. Love them enough to show them where they're going wrong. Love them enough to show them how to go right. You leave them to their own, the book of Proverbs says, they bring their mother to shame. God loves us enough. He's going to correct us. Going to show us what's wrong. Going to show us where our behavior is wrong. Going to show us how to get it right in that process of chastening. It's part of His wisdom in verses 9 and 10 we see. We had fathers of our flesh which corrected us as we gave them reverence. Shall we not rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? They verily chastened us after their own pleasure, or as it seemed best to them. But He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. It involves His wisdom. Verse 11 says there's a design to it. It's not meaningless, the things we suffer in life. I go back to that question. What if life isn't meant to be perfect or a utopia here on this earth? And what if the things that shape and mold our character, not only for time but for eternity, are those things over which we have no control? And maybe the unpleasant things in life. We wouldn't choose them. Much like when you're in school, you wouldn't choose to have math every day. Unless you like math. But someone else has chosen the course. And we can't clept it. We can't audit it in that sense. It brings us to a point. It produces something. Holiness, it says in verse 11. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In verse 10, it enables us to be partakers of His holiness. It brings forth fruit. Therefore, it has a design. It accomplishes something. And sometimes in life we may think, Lord, why? Why am I going through this? Why am I experiencing this? But if we're a believer in Christ, there's a purpose. There's a designer. There's one that we can trust. You see, it's not punishment. Punishment is for enemies. Chastening is for children. Wrath is for enemies. Parental love in this way is of God. Punishment is handed out by the judge. Chastening by the Father in whom, if we're believers in Christ, we have a relationship. Part of the problems we find in the book of Hebrews is the tendency to do what is called in verse 12, droop. The tendency 
to become, as it says, and you'll notice it twice in verse 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction or hostility of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. There's not only physical wearing down, there is mental wearing down. The race can be very difficult at times. There's a tendency to droop. If you're a runner, you know. When you're running, your arms tend to go down, don't they? Not just your feet, but even the droop that comes. In life sometimes, as these things are difficult to endure. But we note the context again. By the way, that passage is, if I can just take a moment to mention it in in chapter 12 and verse 3, wearied and faint in your minds, you'll find an expression that is parallel to that in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for this salvation in this race. Now that, you won't find it in some of the more modern translations. Unfortunately, here's where dynamic equivalence doesn't work that well, in my opinion. Because you don't get the connection that you do. It does mean to prepare yourself mentally and prepare your minds. But if you don't have gird up the minds, you miss the allusion to the Old Testament and the Passover, which is clearly the context of 1 Peter chapter 1, the lamb that was slain and his blood and so on. You know, I, I have never seen anybody observe in a true biblical fashion the Passover. You say, have you ever seen a cedar? Well, that's not biblical. There's no lamb. There's no blood. It's not biblical. It's traditional. But it's not biblical. Do you know how you observe the Passover biblically? One of the things you did, and God told them to, is to eat with your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand and your loins girded up. Get your belt and pull your britches up. Because you're getting ready to go on a journey and you grab that hunk of lamb in one hand and your stick in the other with your shoes on your feet because you're going to be moving out. It's going to be a tough journey. You're going to have to eat on the run. That's the way they were supposed to observe it. It was to prepare their minds for the journey ahead. You can't run with your britches hanging down. A few years ago, about seven or eight years ago, I got a phone call that my father had died. I headed north from where I lived towards Jacksonville, Florida, where my father lived, about a two-hour drive. I was driving a little Taurus at the time. Got to the little town of Palatka, Florida, noticed a big commotion in the road in front of me. car was in the intersection. It hit another car, steam coming all up out of the radiator. And uh, as I kind of slowly, you know, approached this place. You couldn't go around it anyway because where the road was. I noticed out of the corner of my eye a young, thin, tall fella, 17, 18 years, he looked like to me of age, running. And a fairly overweight policeman trying to keep up with him, chasing him. And as they ran off to the right, 
I noticed that all of a sudden the young fella turned, he started coming back toward the traffic, and, you know, timing is everything. I thought if I keep going, he's going to run right behind my car. So as he got closer, just before the time when if I kept going, he'd run behind my car, slammed on brakes. And he hit the back of the car. And he flipped around. And he took off. I didn't even think. I opened the door. I'm out after him. Guy in the car in front of me, he's out of his car. He's after me. And the fairly overweight policeman is behind all of us. (laughs) And we're running. I'm in my mind. I'm thinking if he pulls a gun or a knife, I'm out of here. He's young. He's athletic. I'm 40 plus, pushing 50. I'm keeping up with him. You know why? His britches were hanging halfway down his legs. He couldn't run. And finally, he hits a little swale in the ground, and he falls down. And I fall on top of him, and the guy behind me falls on top of me, and the fairly overweight policeman comes and cuffs the guy. I never would have caught him except his britches were hanging down. I can't ever preach this passage without ever telling that. (laughs) Because to me, it's such a classic example. The Lord said, gird up your loins. Get the belt on. They had robes. Hate to try to run track in a robe. Can you imagine running track in a bathrobe? So they had to pull it up. And it it was a way of saying, prepare yourself for what's ahead. It's going to be a difficult journey. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to get you there to the end, but it's going to be tough. It's going to have its rough spots. You better prepare yourself, as Peter says, mentally. And so it is in the book of Hebrews as they were enduring such affliction. But one thing he does remind them, you have not resisted yet unto blood. You haven't experienced what Christ said, what Christ did. I want to suggest to you as I close very quickly here, Four things to consider in this passage. One, consider God's purpose. Look up that passage in the book of Deuteronomy sometime, chapter 8. It may be a blessing to you to see there what God's purpose was for Israel at that point. He says, I led you through that waste howling wilderness where there were scorpions and drought and all these other things and serpents. But there's a part in that passage that says, I did it for a reason. Not only to humble you, not only to prove you, but to do you good at your latter end. God's purpose in chastening. It may not seem pleasant right now what you experience, but God has a purpose in it. God's end, ultimately to conform us to the person of His Son, to the character of His Son, Jesus Christ, to whittle away everything from us that doesn't look like His Son. Consider God's provision. It's richly found throughout the book of Hebrews here. And consider God's Son. Notice this word in chapter 12 and verse 1. Wherefore, seeing. You might want to make a link to what you have in chapter 11 and verse 27 about Moses, who by faith forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing. Him who is invisible. One thing the writer to the book of Hebrews wants you to do is to consider God's Son. He says it at the very beginning, doesn't he? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. 
I know of no other book in the Bible that so beautifully presents the person and the work of the Lord Jesus as the book of Hebrews. Matter of fact, you will get one major aspect of the work of Christ unfolded in this book that you won't get anywhere else in the Word of God, and that is the priestly work that the Lord Jesus is doing for us now. As you run the race, keeping your eye on the goal, seeing Him who is invisible, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. There is one there that we see unfolded in this book. And I want to tell you this as we close. Our hands may get weary, and we may get tired in the race, but He never will. This book of Hebrews says, Wherefore He is able to save them to the uttermost, to the very end, that come unto God by Him, because He ever liveth to make intercession for them. That's our high priest, the Lord Jesus. When the Word of God fillets you and opens you up as it is able to do, because it pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, of the thoughts and the very intents of the heart. The writer to the Hebrews says, we have a throne of grace. We can come to that throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And when you know you're not what you should be, and you know you're not what you ought to be, or you ought to be doing, or any of the rest. I was reminded of something this morning from a very secular newspaper. The Yosemite, whatever it is, I don't even know what it's called. I hadn't picked it up all week. Picked it up this morning, opened it up, and learned something. I knew there was a Merced River. It's not what they called it in the magazine. They called it the river of mercy. The river of mercy. Oh, what a reminder. Come boldly to the throne of grace. They might obtain mercy, grace to help in time of need. Our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, He'll help you. He'll enable you to keep going. He is the author. And aren't you glad He's the finisher? <laughs> aren't you glad you didn't set out on the race and, and, and it be said to you, all right, I'm going to start it, but you're going to have to finish it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus, whoever lives to make intercession for us, our great high priest. And in this school of, of God, in this school of discipline and chastening, it can be difficult it can be grievous. It can be hard. Some of it by our own making. Other because of the process and plan of God. But we submit ourselves to that program knowing that the one whose hand is upon that shaper and upon that sandpaper, if you will, is the one who loved us enough to go to Calvary's cross and die for us. There's a God we can trust. There's one we can look to and depend upon and completely place our lives in and say, Lord, whatever it takes to make me into the image of Your Son, I submit to that program. May it yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness and may we be partakers of holiness by that very process. We give You thanks and Him the glory, our Lord Jesus, in His name. Amen.